Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth podcast. This podcast is about sharing strategies and ideas to help business owners build, protect, and transition their businesses for the future while creating more balance in their life. Your host is Thomas J. Perone, CLUCIC, and president of the New England Consulting Group of Guilford Incorporated, consulting business owners for over 50 years. Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth. Hi, I'm Tom Perone, and I'm your host. And this podcast is all about learning strategies to build your business, to create greater profit, but to create also an abundance of leisure time so you can enjoy what you're building. Today, we have a wonderful guest, and I would like to introduce to you Ed Pertessi. Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth podcast. Ed, thank you for taking time and participating today. How are you? I'm great, Tom. Thank you so much for inviting me. I look forward to this conversation, if you will. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Well, we've had many conversations, and we have a commonality in this topic today that you're going to enlighten us with. But first of all, congratulations, Opening Valuation and Transition Strategy, LLC. Well, thank you. It's it's been a... uh, a process, if you will, after having my own firm for over 20-something years, actually almost 30 years, merging my company with UHY Advisors four years ago, and officially retiring, in quotes, from UHY, but also understanding that I really love what I do, and that's part of the passion of doing what I do. You know, uh, working with you uh, this past year and a half, two years, I, uh, I, I see the passion every time we talk about these subjects, which Uh, We're going to spend a lot of time on today. But one thing I want to tell the audience, besides the fact that you're very good at what you do and you have a lot of letters behind your name, and uh, I can't figure what they are except for the CPA, but I do know this. You have spanned three different disciplines in your career, sales and marketing, corporate strategy and and control systems, and accounting and finance. And I, I know I have a question about how that's helped you, but I can't, I can't, uh, I, I got to believe that's been a big asset to having that experience over the years. It, it certainly has, Tom. It's really provided me with a perspective that a lot of uh, practitioners in the CPA world, perhaps, and maybe even in finance, have not um, participated in. And that includes the sales and marketing piece where literally it, I was a salesman when I first started and I graduated from college, uh, went on to corporate, or actually went on to um, to the CPA world by, by virtue of uh, joining on with a big eight accounting firm, which of course I'm dating myself by saying that. And then on to industry, uh, where I was head of corporate strategic planning for a publicly traded company. And finally back to public accounting again and making the, making the transition, as I call it, to the dark side, which is over to finance and into valuation. Yeah, I know you use that term dark side all the time. I get a kick out of it. Um, Well, you know, uh, here's some questions I do have for you since you see it all the time. What are the trends that you see in the sale of businesses currently, especially with the baby boomers and maybe focus on Connecticut? It's sort, of, it's sort of interesting, Tom. You know, over the, I've been involved with, in quotes, I, I'll say the, the cottage industry known as exit planning or what I call transition planning. It's evolved from 2004 when I first began 
understanding that, guess what? Business owners really needed to have an exit plan. The problem is many of them do not engage in a plan. Rather, they wait for some external event to occur, which which uh, which instigates them to start a process. In many instances, it's too late. So what are we seeing now? I think what we're seeing now is more and more of the baby boomer generation of which we're a part-time, as you know, transitioning or thinking about transition. The question really is, are they acting? Are they putting together a plan that is viable and workable? Or are they just saying, well, I'll get to that later. My experience has been over the last 15 years or so is the, 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 wait and, the wait and see attitude is still very prevalent in small business owners. Uh, I agree with you. Um, and I always use the word, you can either have a design plan or a plan by default. The design plan is always the most rewarding, but you have to put some time in. And uh, I, I totally agree with you. People that want to transition in and exit their business uh, don't realize that a lot of the value drivers, as we've talked about, take time to create over time, not two or three years, but sometimes 10 years. Very true. Tom, there's an interesting, it, it, there's an interesting parable that I, that I tell to anyone that'll listen, actually. Um, I've only encountered one business owner who five years before he, his designed exit had a plan. His plan was very simple. It was an insurance agency in Massachusetts. He said, listen, Ed, I, I, he'd been doing strategic plans for the number of years that I work with him, over 20. And he said, Ed, in five years, I want to be able to transition my practice. I don't want to sell outside. I think my son's going to be a, going to be the great owner of this. He brought his son on board. His son went through the, the process and he ultimately transitions. Five years later, sold his, his company, his insurance agency to his son and moved to the Cape. Yeah. That's unusual. Yeah, it is. It's very unusual. And, you know, and then he had a plan and it wasn't by default. No. Uh, no. Uh, you know, what, what do you think, Ed, makes businesses successful while other businesses really struggle? success? <laughs> that's a great, that's a great question, Tom. And you know, it's funny, we, I'm sure we both can look back in, in, in our history with various clients and say, you know, we just talked about it briefly by talking about exit planning or transition planning, but the whole notion of planning is really what makes many businesses successful and others not so. I think it's very simplistic, but it's really important. There's an old saying, and actually a, a saying that I learned back in the late 70s, it's in this, the simplicity of it is this, throw out the plan, but keep the plan. And, it's, and this was on the, in the corporate environment, but it's so true with closely held business owners as well. Keep planning. The, the plan that you had yet last week may not be appropriate. Evolve it, but do have a plan. Uh, our friend, Brian Kerrigan, your partner in crime, um, who helps companies grow. And I know you work with Brian quite a bit has a saying, he says, at the very least, you need an emergency plan. If you get in a car accident last night and you died, what do you, what's going to happen, right? So at the very least. Absolutely. That's it. That contingency planning is absolutely essential. It goes with, in quotes, what we'll call corporate planning, but really planning for the strategies that you're going to be implemented, including discussions of and understanding of the value drivers that impact your business. Well, you know, you and I uh, have talked about this so much, but really what we do for business owners 
is we ended up we ended up planning their unfinished financial plans, which if left undone can lead to financial failure. But if they are completed, we create tremendous financial independence. Absolutely. Those words are so critical. And, you know, it's all about the, the notion, does the business owner grasp that? Can he, can he understand it? And can he ultimately act? That's the key. Well, later I'm going to ask you about your process because I know you have a very good process. And what I've seen from your process is it creates, uh, it, 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 it uh, respects the brevity that a business owner has so that they can do this planning without interfering with working in their business. And we'll talk about that in a little while, Ed. Um, what, are the, what do you think warriors businessmen, business owners, I should say, sorry about that, business owners on the surface, but then what's below that surface that worries them that you find ultimately that they won't, they won't share? You know, we almost alluded to it earlier, Tom, and we, and we talked about, you know, they're worried about the cash flow. They're worried about where the market is going, what's going to happen tomorrow in terms of sales. And at the end of the day, a lot of them take the manana attitude. I'll, yeah. I'll wait. I'll do something tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, and I know, listen, I was in practice for 50 years running a business, and I know at the end of the day, you're so worn out and you know it bothers you, but you say, tomorrow's a new day. I'll deal with it tomorrow. And I just kick the can down the road, you know. Um, but you got to, you got, it's like wetting the bed. You got to get up and change the sheets sooner or later, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. or, or, or risk chafing. Yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, and what, you know, you, you're looking at, a business from three parts that are so strong in your disciplines, the marketing, the operations, and the accounting. What do you think are the key value drivers that help business owners create growth? But as an appraiser, you look at in priority. That's a lo- it's a loaded question, but it's a good question. Is. And, you know, the, the, the literature is replete with numerous definitions and understandings of what value drivers are. And I think in, in, in my mind, I look at value drivers a little bit differently. And they are specific to which company you're trying to value or determine how to increase its value. And it really uh, focuses, in my humble opinion, upon the planning process, which we talked about. It also talks to um, what is the value proposition. Ultimately, at the end of the day, if you don't have a value proposition that provides a solution to a customer, what do you have? And I think that's the driving force from a value driving perspective, understanding the customer, understanding what value you bring to the customer, or what I call the why of what. If you recall, uh, and maybe some of the some of the listeners may recall Simon Sinek, and the question of why why do you do what you do, and it's not so much how and what. I ask the question a little differently and say, the why of what you do. Why do you do what you do? And that question really is grounded in the notion of the value proposition and who your customer is or marketplace. Uh, yeah, you know you're so right because really at the end of the day. Uh, you might not have the best widget or the fastest widget, 
But if you have the right message and you get people what they want and they believe they want, that that has a lot of power to it. Yeah, it, it's about resonation with the customer because at the end of the day, if we're not, we're not going to be in business long. Um, when should business owners start thinking of selling their business? Interesting question. I, I think it's somewhat... Um, there, there's, there, and I would almost say instead of selling, transitioning. And I think transitioning may, may be the better word, and that's the reason I chose it, because it really talks to whether or not you want to sell or or you want to transition internally or externally to other owners. At the end, one time it might be to an to a uh, as an example, internal versus external transfers might be to a, a salesperson as an example, or to a family member versus going to sell. When should they think about it? You know, I take a lesson from private equity. Private equity, well, up until recently, had a whole a buy and hold strategy that said, okay, we're buy, we'll we'll, we'll knock the knock the ball out of the out of the ballpark over the next five years and we'll sell. They be, they begin with an exit in mind. Five years down the road, we want to exit this investment. I think all invest in, in business owners should be thinking in those terms. Every day that you're not thinking about adding value, you're still, you're buying your business. If you think about that very simple, that simple term, you're buying your business if you're continuing to invest in it. So you have to continue buying in your business in order to ultimately sell or transition it. You know, I always have this, uh, I just did a video and put it on LinkedIn, but I talk about the dollar 82 to dollar uh, to 76 cents. And, and in that, and what I was really saying is, when someone wants to buy your business, it's really, it's always your money. It's never new money. It's always your money <laughs> that buys it. And you start with a dollar 82, you take out the, the taxes to pay, to buy the owner out for a dollar, but the owner now pays capital gains, ends up with 76 cents. So the IRS ends up with a dollar six and the owner who sold his business ends up with 76 cents. And then when you put it in those terms, you have to start thinking about, is selling my business to a third party really the best way of doing it? Or am I better doing be more of a passive owner and bringing in key people and my family or whatever and collecting for, <laughs> for a long time, you know? Um, and I'm sure in your planning, you look at that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, in any transition plan, you're, you're seeking to minimize taxes. And there are numerous strategies out there which are beyond the, the scope of this particular interview. But those are the things we look at to determine how best to go about doing it, assuming that you have the, the three ultimate choices, forgetting for a moment ESOPs, which we which is another potential option, too. Right. At the end of the day, you're looking at minimizing the tax crunch because, why you know you have another partner and that's the IRS or the government. So Ed, let's come back to ESOPs and also yep. private equity because you have a lot of experience in this. What size company is a good prospect, and what are the requirements for a company to look at an ESOP? Maybe we should. Maybe you can explain to the audience what an ESOP is. A lot of people don't know that. Sure. Uh, an ESOP is an employee stock ownership plan, and basically there's there's two effective options. There's either 100% ESOP, which means the owner is selling to all of the uh, employees of the business, or there is a creeping ESOP, as I like to call it, which is it starts off as as an example of a 30% buy-in by the by the um, 
by the employees. And typically, it may be financed either externally or internally, depending upon the structure of the ESOP. But ESOPs are a great tool if you have the right number of employees and employee compensation. Um, there's a lot of rules and regulations associated with that, including both the IRS and DOL, uh, Department of Labor. Um, it's a very it's a, it's a very useful tool for certain size companies. If I had to guess, uh, if I had to put a minimum barrier, it might be anywhere from $2 million to $5 million of, of a compensation, not including the owner compensation. That might be a, a starting point for considering uh, an ESOP for purposes of a transition plan. So when you say $2 million of compensation, are you talking about salaries? Salaries and wages, both. And wages. Okay. I gotcha. All right. And then, and how many employees normally would, would that, let's say that, let's take that low level of 2 million in compensation. Mm -hmm. is, is there a minimum on employee size? I think you'd want some level of diversification in terms of numbers of employees. Clearly you wouldn't want, as an example, two employees making that $2 million. Yeah. That would be a harder, that would be a harder, and presumably they would be in sales or providing some certain high level specialty services as opposed to the compensation paid to the owner. So I think you would want a, a resident um, census, if you will, of, of, of employees. And, and, and Ed, on private equities, I know there's been kind of a, it seems like there's been kind of a, a, a philosophical switch over the last couple of years. At least I, I kind of think there is. I don't know. But tell us a little bit about private equity firms and what's going on with them now. Equity is a, if, if a potentially great uh, exit strategy for an, a number of businesses. And in fact, you can en end up with a double bite of the apple where they end up buying out 90% of your company and you end up with 10% assuming that you're going to be continuing on in your management role. But for the most part, um, private equity firms are looking companies with size, looking for companies that they can scale and also for companies that have a market niche or a market that is where they, where they think they will be able to exercise a sale, a sale about five years or seven years. That holding period has has lengthened over time, but it's just the nature of, of finance and industry. Yeah, and and, and how let's what size would a company be as far as a prospective private equity takeover company? I think they'll be somewhat industry specific, but I would say it's clearly as a as a starting point, probably ten million dollars, maybe more, dependent upon the size. As an example, distribution might it might be ten to fifteen million dollars, and in many instances, a lot of the buys by private equity are add-ins or um, add-ins to the existing portfolio, where they add some some market niche that is not being served presently by their their uh, principal investment. And and when you do work with, a, let's say, an employer. Um, is part of your service going out to have discussions with private equity firms? It may include that. Yes. And the answer is yes. Uh, it's not as typical. But it's, it's, it's certainly uh, a tool that you'll in your, in your toolbox that you would consider. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it, it is about the, the, the future prospects, all of the things that I said earlier, but yeah, very definitely. What are the, um, 
What do you think are the key issues that most business owners really, you know, they have to stay on top of to stay successful or even become successful? Yeah, I think, Tom, that's another great question. And I think it's really about ensuring that your value proposition is appreciated and and actually resonates with your customers. I, I go I go back to the top uh, always when I talk about strategy or strategic advisory, and it's really about what is your value proposition and who is your market and how best to serve it and who is doing a better job at it. Those are a number of the strategic questions that you begin to ask. And clearly, you know, a lot of a lot of owners take their foot off the pedal when they get to a certain age. Pick a number, 60, 65, whatever, and they sort of coast. When you start coasting, that's one of the biggest problems I've seen in many business owners where coasting gets you into trouble. And, you know, there's a great um, saying that I used to say in, in exit planning presentations and that stasis is not an option and literally staying still is not appropriate. That's a good one. And, and you know, you're right. Um, it's like losing enthusiasm of what you're doing almost without saying it. Uh, Time to get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, we've all been through a little bit of it as we've gotten older. Um, but it is interesting that people, um, and it's also an indicator that maybe it is time to consider transition. Mm-hmm. You know, so, absolutely. Um, in in planning with the business owners, uh, let me come back to something. I want to talk about free time, but the one thing I wanted to say is that um, very few advisors like yourself recognize the marketing aspect of a company. I think you recognize that because you've had so much experience in marketing that all of a sudden it's in your toolbox where a lot of other advisors uh, really have not had that experience. I had an experience which I brought you in last year where one the uh, uh, the company's uh, a CPA, good guy, but he wanted to just put a number on times earnings. Um, and uh, certainly if it had been looked at more thoroughly, it would have been many more times earnings. And the aspect of that was that they weren't taking into consideration the value proposition that this mm-hmm. company owns. Um, and I've learned that through you, that you look it through it. I, so it's, it's kind of a unique dimension that you have that I haven't seen that many people in the finance world throw that in the mix of what they're looking at. Does that makes any sense to you? Yeah, it does. And it, it, it goes to the notion of it, there's three primary services that, that, are, that our firm offers, and first of which is valuation, the second of which is strategic advisory, and the last is transition strategy development. But going back to valuation, which I think is what you're alluding to, Tom, is the simple notion that valuation is, is not something that you put numbers into a black box or an Excel spreadsheet, as the case may be, and churn out a number. It's really... Its, its essence is the business itself. And too often, I think many advisors and or appraisers, and this is not a criticism, but more of an observation that they take the numbers to heart or too seriously and not considering the heart of the business, if you will. And if that is really what drives value, ultimately. And it's more than just an exercise of numbers. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, you can go on the market today and you'll see advertisements of software to value your company. And, you know, you and I, uh, (laughs) together, we have a lot of years. uh, We've discussed this concept. 
but I don't know how many people you've ever asked who own a business, what do you think their business value is? And they told you, <laughs> well, well, I know my value. I know my company. And they're totally off, actually. I mean, I think the worst thing a business owner can do is assume they know what the value of their company is, um, which leads me to how often should a company do evaluation, Ed? Another great question, Tom. And I'm going to say the classic answer from an attorney's perspective, it depends. So I'm not avoiding the question. What I am saying, in effect, is it depends on the owner's position and where he is, whether or not he has other shareholders, whether or not he has compensation plans that are that are directly correlated with or, or directly tied to equity. A lot of those a lot of those a lot of those conditions will determine how often evaluation should occur. At a minimum, at least once every other couple of years. It may be sooner, depending upon again compensation plans that are that are based upon equity. Um, it, it's also a really important part of the whole transition process because if you're entering into the transition process, I think the very simple question, the answer is. What is the value, or any question rather, what is the value of your business? And how do I go about transitioning it? And who do I transition? Who do I transition it to? Uh, well, you know, I've always suggested to business owners who have not had a valuation that they should at least get a baseline valuation, uh, you know, just to start it off instead of guessing. You know how many buy and sell agreements over the years? where they want to put a fixed price in and they and they fight you on the valuation, but that's really not the right way of doing it. Um, what do you no. think about baseline valuations, especially if you had a company that you haven't had one for in years and it's grown? I like that idea actually, because it does provide that information. And you're, you, you hit a nail, you hit a, a nerve, I should say, by talking about buy-sell agreements that have static um, static valuation, as an example, or book value, or some formula that doesn't make sense to the current economic and strategic positioning of the firm. So a lot of times we, we see buy-sell agreements that are absolutely a bit abysmal. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it becomes a, litig a, a litigious event. And that's really what you're trying to avoid. Oh, absolutely. Because they're, I, I don't know, I, I know. I have a lot to say that we'd have to do a whole episode on it because my experience of seeing just very tainted buy and sell agreements, very sloppy. And you know, if there's one area of concern that if anybody's listening owns a business, get your buy and sell agreements updated and reviewed at least yearly, at the at the least every two years, because there's a lot of uh, legal procedures sitting in the dark there. Uh, because they're done so poorly in most cases. Um, that's that's my that's my thing of the day today. Um, that's a great point, Tom. And, and I think on your website you have a a, a, a valuation piece that relates to buy sell agreements and the number of appraisers that you can consider in um, in, in in the in the buy sell agreement. And that's that I I refer the listeners to that as well. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's another good question. You know. Uh, at the end of the day, you have a buy and sell agreement. Let's say it's put together very well. The question now is, what valuation are you going to use? And we talked about multiple valuations, single valuations. So, Ed, tell the audience what I mean by that. 
Yeah, it, it, I think what Tom, I think what you're referring to is the choice of appraisers. Many, many different, uh, many different, but many buy sell agreements have choices in there, or you have choices in a buy sell agreement. Let me put it that way. The first is a single appraiser. The problem with that is who gets to choose that appraiser? It probably it probably needs to be unanimous consent. That may be, cause problematics. There's the two appraiser possibility where you say, okay, either side hires an appraiser. They come up with their appraisal numbers if it's within ten percent. All fair and good, split the difference, perfect. The other option is where the 10% is, it's not 10% difference, it's much larger than that between the two appraisers, is the hiring of a third appraiser. And that's when it starts getting expensive, to put it mildly, where that third appraiser becomes the arbiter, if you will, of what the value is. I think you just have to be careful what you're wishing for in this. Right. And again, things like this should be in the the... Uh, agreement and the buy and sell agreement and also your articles of uh, incorporation or partnership. Um, and it should be a dis- it should be an issue to be discussed, right, Ed? Yeah, whatever the agreement, it should be part of it. They're very cool. And, and, and you know, what, what I see also business owners is um, just getting the attorney involved with it, writing up a buy sell agreement and not really understanding the provisions. That's or and not providing Tom. I think this hits upon one of the things that you do so well, and that is the funding of the buy sell agreement. How is it going to be funded? Yeah, because capital is uh, it's you can have all the great documents in the world, but if you don't have the money or the ability to pay, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it doesn't mean anything, right? Um, so Ed. You know, I, let's talk about the process because huh? I know you have a process and many of them, processes, I guess. And um, let's talk about when you first are referred in to a business owner to discuss the value of their company. Can you bring us down the line as to how you work with them? Sure. It's going to first arguably be determined by what's the purpose of the valuation. That's the first question that crosses my mind in what I ask of either the, the attorney and or the uh, business client. The next question is, I ask it sort of differently, and I ask, what are you selling? And that's a question that really is sort of a loaded question because they may or may not be selling. But the real question is, are you selling a less than controlling interest in the company? Are you selling a controlling interest in the company? Or am I valuing, rather, a controlling interest in the company? I want to understand what rights and privileges of the interest that I'm valuing, what that what that what that interest has. So those are those are the first couple of questions. The next question really is about what I what I call pre due diligence, and the due diligence process means this: I want to get an understanding of expectations from the client, or and or attorney, as the case may be. Where do you see the where do you see the valuation going? What is again going back to what the purpose is? But I really want to understand expectations. In many in some instances, I should say. There's an expectation that it's the value should be. I know what the value is, as an example, it should be $10 million. And what I want to be sure of is that I don't get myself into a position where I have to say, guess what? That really is not even close. So part of that preliminary due diligence is looking at tax returns and or financial statements and getting an understanding of what, what and where the company is in terms of financial performance and possibly even more from a strategic perspective. From there, I can get an idea of what our course is going to be based upon what we have to do. We then go into further due diligence by we have a whole information request that we go through. 
We start the valuation process, which is basically spreadsheet oriented, but we also interview the interview management. Independent on the size of the company, it may be one, two, or three other individuals as well in the company. We then formulate, if you will, looking at industry statistics and capturing a lot of other data on the industry itself, we, we start the process of evaluation and determine which method will logically or better provide indications of value. There are three basic approaches, and I don't want to bore the listeners, but the first is the market market approach, which really takes into consideration what transactions have occurred in the marketplace and try to correlate a multiple to our subject company. It also includes looking at publicly traded companies, although that's less likely dependent, and again, that's dependent on the size of the company. The other one is cost approach. And the cost approach is less likely to be used in operating businesses, primarily because we're not looking at a liquidation and we're not in the process of selling assets. The last one is the income approach, which I believe is the most important valuation um, approach that is usable. And that really considers what people are buying. What are investors buying? They're buying cash flows. And I want to value any business that I work with typically on the basis of cash flow. From there, we develop an opinion of value, present it for discussion, ultimately then finalize a report. And depending upon whether or not there's discounts allowable or not, as an example, lack of control and lack of marketability. And what lack of marketability refers to is something, a simple concept. It's like the classic example I always use is, listen, if you have a share of IBM stock, you know one thing, you could sell it tomorrow. If I have a share in an ABC widget company that is only represents 10% of the ownership, I've got a problem in terms of marketability. It's going to take me a while to get get it to market and realize cash. Yeah, I, you know the process is really unique because there's so many little facets of it um, that are so, and every every element is so important for the whole. You can't you can't come up with something without uh, and and eliminate an, an element that you spoke about. You need them all, and that leads me to the question of when you start a process like that. I know it's all over the lot, but what what, do you, what would you tell a business owner as far as the timing of having a completed report for them if they uh, if they obviously were very good with helping you out getting all the information you need. <laughs> Yeah, it, the, the typical process is between two to four weeks. I try to get, um, I try to accelerate the process because I know most business owners don't want to be waiting for the product or, or, the, or, the, or the, waiting for the process in, in product. So my goal is once I have information, the information I need to perform the valuation service, I will, I will guarantee service within two to four weeks. Oh, that's that's yeah, that's important. I think there's some, and that is assuming the business owner is uh, good about getting the reports we need. And I know, you know, business owners love brevity. They don't like to spend a lot of time in an office, and it's sometimes that's, you know, they fight the toothache. It won't go to the dentist, kind of thing. You know, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, we all do it. But um, so, um, uh, and. What are the problems when you're working with a business owner and you're trying to get this valuation done? Do, do things stick out that you've had in the past experiences where you can upfront tell the business owner, listen, in the past, this has been a problem. So I need your agreement that you'll do A, B, and C. Uh, 
tell us a little bit about that. I, I think I think what you're referring to is, uh, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but I think it refers to the ability for the business owner to actually focus on getting us the information. Is that a fair assessment? You right on. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. I should have been more clear with that, but you're no, right. That, no, that's okay. <laughs> In other words, get <laughs> off your ass and do something. <laughs> you know, you know what I like. We understand each other, which is even scarier. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with that said, yeah, we, we're just going through evaluation right now. We started this in September of last year, to give you an instance, and we're finally getting the information. We got the last piece of information that was necessary as last week in January. That that causes problems. It causes start and start stop and start problems. Yeah. It's it, it 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 really it screws up our process because when we start to work on on and in this particular case we did not start because pieces of critical information weren't available. So it, you know and and you know the comical thing at times is then they'll ask us in a week after they provided the last piece, <laughs> where's my report? Yeah. <laughs> what, right, what have right. you done for me lately? <laughs> I, I picked it up this afternoon. Will you have it done by five today? I got it. So, and you have a, a state. Uh, you have a phrase that you use, and I've heard it a number of times: "Unholy truisms in valuation." Please explain that to us. Yeah, it's you know after all these years, Tom, at least ten or fifteen. Um, one of the things that I found is. The first of which is synergies. I think synergies are overrated, overvalued, and in many instances, the whole notion of performance, the performance as a relation to synergies does not exist or will not happen. The second is maximizing value. I hear this term constantly. And while I think it's a noble goal, the concept is a cliche. It's overused again, underachieved. And actually, let me ask a simple question. How many businesses can actually maximize value? And that I leave that question open to the audience. And finally, valuation multiples. I think we all are imbued with the notion that valuation multiples are the guiding lights, if you will, to determine value. I disagree. I think they're helpful. They're not value indicators, but rather valuation multiples are indicative of transactions that have, have occurred in the past, if it's a privately held company, or of present market pricing if it relates to price earnings ratios for publicly traded companies. So I think valuation multiples are overrated. A lot of times what we do when we finish evaluation, we look at the valuation multiples to see what they are and compare them to a peers. But we have to remember the data underlying those valuation multiples may include earnouts, other buyouts, other conditions that are un that are not known necessarily, other unless you dig into where those valuation multiples came from. Uh, yeah, I uh, I agree, and it, you know it's amazing how each company is different. Well, you probably have different ways of looking at valuations depending on the company and the proposition statement. Um, and and is that true with? Any size company, Ed, or is it? Are these truisms or the unholy truisms uh, only true for in your world for the larger company? I think they apply. They certainly apply, in my in my opinion, to the privately held companies and many of them. It also applies to a certain extent to public some public companies. Synergies is a great example of that. But I, I will digress on that because my my space, if you will, and where I practice, it's the valuation of 
small, uh, closely held business. And I say small, anywhere between a million dollars in revenues up to close to be 50 to $75 million in revenue. So there's a wide just a wide range there. But at the end of the day, synergies as it relates to acquisitions or product portfolios that are required, max, maximizing value. And, and I hate to, I'm going to say it very simply, maximizing value is really conditioned on the, the perspective of the owner and the ability to maximize value. And finally, valuation multiples, very true across the board. I've seen so many businesses valued using valuation multiples that are totally different in terms of they could have the same amount of sales, but totally different profits at the end of the day. How can you use the same multiple for both? You know, that's, you know, how many times in my career I talk to someone in an industry and they'll tell me, well, our association says <laughs> we're six times earnings. Yep. Uh, okay. <laughs> There's a, let me tell you, I'm dealing with that right now. In the property and casualty insurance agency business, I've, I've done valuations of these for over 20 something years. We had a specialty in them in my accounting practice back when, before I sold it. And the, the, the mantra that is used is 1.5 to 2.0 times revenues. And that's, that's the walk forward regardless of whether or not it's making money. In a a lot of instances, that may be, that may be true to a strategic buyer because they're probably going to take the agency. Let's presume it's a smaller property and casualty agency and fold it into their existing operations, which means of course they can pay that much because they're buying a book of business, totally different from many other businesses or standalone businesses. You know, we can uh, certainly, talk on so many of the areas for a long time today but um i think what i the point i that you've been making and the questions really come down to is that if you have a business uh the one of the best things you can do is get an evaluation at least as a baseline is to have a contingency plan while you're working on your design plan like i spoke about and uh, i have a lot of that information in my book unlocking your business DNA, um, which if you'd like a copy, you can email me. I'll be in the show notes. Um, and I think, Ed, uh, in summary, uh, you've, you've covered all corners of being a CPA, strategic planner, marketing and operations, but your focus today is really to help the business owner come up with valuation of their businesses and uh, you're, that's your focus today, and you enjoy that the most out of all of the tools that you have. I would think that would be a true statement. Yeah, and I look at it as sort of a, a stool with three legs. The first is valuation, and it's understanding value and helping the owners understand what value, the value, how valuation works, and how value drivers work to increase it. We talk to the notion of strategic advisory, which is really about looking at. What is driving? What is determining those value drivers? How do I identify it? And how do we go forward to to ultimately enhancing value? And finally, the third uh, leg of the stool is really the last, which is, okay, let's devise a plan strategy to actually help you transition this business in a tax-efficient and uh, hopefully in a tax-efficient manner as well. Well, Ed, you you know, again, uh, you were really nice. And I know that if anybody has questions about their business, 
I know Ed would certainly uh, accept a phone call from you or an email and talk to you a little bit about uh, your situation uh, at any time. And Ed, we're going to put all of the contact information in the show notes um, so people can contact you. I I would assume the best way of contacting you is either by phone or email. Yeah, that is correct, Tom. And you know what I offer to... Uh, any prospective clients or uh, potential referral sources, I'll provide a half hour to an hour conference call. I have no problem with doing that. I, it's best to get to know you. Wonderful. Yes. Um, and, and, and really, I, I have to tell you, uh, if you have a business that you don't know the value to, you should spend a half hour to an hour with Ed. It won't cost you anything, but you'll learn an awful lot in that period of time. Ed, I want to thank you for giving up a lot of your time for us today. We learned an awful lot. And um, I know on your website, there's some good material out there, and I will make sure everybody gets that. But I want to thank you for uh, spending time with us. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Ed? No, I, pre- I appreciate the time at, at you've, uh, and the fact that you've allowed me to do this. My, my website, just for the, re- for the listeners, um, it's in progress or in process, I should say. So it's not quite as complete as I would like it, but I'm working on it. But it, it, in, in short, Tom, I really want to thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to share somewhat some of the stuff that I know and hopefully reach out to me. Uh, I'm glad to talk. Well, as a professional of 50 years in my profession working with business owners, uh, Ed Pertessi is one of the best people to work with. He's very detailed, very clear, and he gives you uh, clarity in what you're doing. So, Ed, thanks a lot, and uh, talk to you soon. My pleasure. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. It was a good show today. And uh, if you would help us out by subscribing, click a like. Uh, If you have any ideas or thoughts that you would like to share with us, please email me at tperone, that's P-E-R-R-O-N-E, at N-E-C-G-G-I-N-C dot com. And if you are a business owner or you know business owners that would like to participate on our show, certainly let me know. We certainly welcome everyone who is a business owner to help people out there that are running businesses with great ideas and strategies to make them successful. So again, thanks for tuning in. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Whenever you're ready to grow and protect your business while creating more balance in your life, here are three steps you can take. One, subscribe to this podcast. To request a free copy of Tom's newly published book, Unlocking Your Business DNA, email Tom at tperone at necgginc.com. And on the subject line, type DNA. Include your mailing address. And thirdly, take the one-minute scorecard and report to see how efficient you are in your business planning. Email tperone at necgginc.com and request scorecard. For additional information, click the show notes.